Well, please turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. As you know, we are making our way through various selected psalms within the Psalter. Last week we considered Psalm 103, and so this week we will uh, be considering the very next psalm, Psalm 104. Psalm 104, please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on his foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills, they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell, they sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships, the Leviathan, which you form to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. 
May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, I remember when we first moved here, and the first time it was a clear day, and I saw Mount Rainier looming, I thought to myself, how do people get used to this? This is incredible. This is amazing. But we do. We get used to how profound and amazing and majestic God's creation is. And what the psalmist is telling us here, right away in verse 1, is that when we behold the beauty of God's creation, we are to call upon our own soul to bless and praise our God. Now notice the similarity between Psalm 103 verse 1 and Psalm 104 verse 1. They begin the same way. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now Psalm 103, which we considered last week, is a psalm in which David is praising and blessing God as Redeemer. Our God is the God who forgives all our iniquities. Our God is a God who promises that he will not repay us according to our sins or treat us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the Lord's steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as the Lord removed our sins from us. But now when we read Psalm 104, the psalmist is calling us to praise God, not primarily as redeemer, but as creator and sustainer. The psalmist here is focusing upon God's works of creation and providence. And so Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 complement each other in a wonderful way. In both Psalms, we are called to praise and bless our God as Redeemer, Creator, and Sustainer. And so this morning, what I'd like us to do is to think about how our God is both Creator and stainer, Sustainer. We're going to think about God's works of creation and providence as a means of stirring up within us praise and worship to our God. Well, you'll notice that right away at the beginning of, of this psalm, we are told that creation reflects the greatness of our God. So the psalmist says in verse 1, at the beginning of this, of this psalm, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The psalmist reminds us that creation testifies to the greatness and splendor and majesty of our God. Psalm 19 says that creation uh, proclaims the glory of God. Calvin referred to creation as a theater of God's glory. Boys and girls, you may have gone to see a drama before, a play, a skit, maybe you've gone to the movie theater to see a movie, you go to such places to see a performance. Well, the psalmist is saying all we need to do is look outside the window to see testimony of God's glory all around us. 
And Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that creation itself uh, means that no, no human being can come before God's judgment and say, God, I, I didn't know that you existed. There, there isn't sufficient evidence. Creation itself leaves every person without excuse before divine judgment. Now, many commentators have noted that Psalm 104 is really a poetic, worshipful reflection or meditation upon Genesis 1. Now, we don't have time to, to go into the connections between Psalm 104 and Genesis 1, but just on a cursory reading, you can see the many connections uh, in Psalm 104 to Genesis 1. Many of the things that we see and hear that were created in Genesis 1 are reiterated here in Psalm 104. One striking observation in Psalm 104 is that God is presented as uh, distinct from creation, but yet at the same time personally involved in and with creation. So creation always remains dependent upon God. That is something that we see throughout this psalm. But God is never dependent upon creation. Creation is dependent upon God, but God is never dependent upon creation. He is self-existent, self-sufficient. Now, a number of Old Testament scholars have also noted that there are a lot of similarities between Psalm 104 and an ancient Egyptian creation hymn. However, there is a, a very notable difference between these two hymns or songs, which the psalmist may have been familiar with as he was penning Psalm 104. In that ancient Egyptian creation hymn, um, that the author of that hymn is, is essentially worshiping the sun god, worshiping creation, while Psalm 104 is worshiping the creator and maker of creation. And so we see that this great god is a God who is both distinct, but yet at the same time personally involved in and with his creation. We also see here in Psalm 104 that creation testifies, reflects the orderliness of God. So in verses 19 through 23, we see how God created and made an ordered creation. This ordered creation reflects the orderliness of God himself. So we see that God has set up the rhythm of night and day. At night, the moon comes out and the, the beasts of the forest creep along the forest floor. And then when the sun rises, the beasts scatter to their dens and man goes out to work until evening. We see that God established the seasons. Fall comes after summer, winter after fall, spring after winter, and summer rolls around again. And so there's a predictable pattern to days and, not, uh, and seasons of the calendar. There's an order to this creation. And this orderly creation causes the psalmist to say in verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. Your works of creation and providence. How manifold are your works in wisdom. In wisdom you made them all. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19 says very much the same thing when the sage says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. The psalmist here is saying that God utilized wisdom in the creation of all things. Or, boys and girls, the most uh, well-used tool in God's toolbox in Genesis 1 and 2 was wisdom. God founded the heavens and the earth through wisdom. 
And so, in this psalm, we are called on a number of occasions to bless and praise the Lord as our creator. Now, of course, we are to literally praise the Lord with our lips, but our praise and worship of God as creator goes, goes much more uh, beyond just lip service. We are to praise God not only with our lips, but with our lives. So one way in which we, we worship, praise God with our lives is by seeking to imitate and reflect the wisdom of God in our lives. So God utilized wisdom in the creation of all things, and we as his image bearers are called to imitate that same wisdom. And as we imitate that same wisdom, we are seeking to worship and praise God as our creator. And there's two ways in which we imitate the wisdom of God in our lives. First, we, we can imitate God's wisdom in perceiving or recognizing the orderliness of this creation and seeking then to live within the bounds of this ordered creation. So if God used wisdom to create an ordered universe, it would seem to make sense that we need to utilize wisdom to perceive and recognize the bounds and order of this universe. I mean, think about ancient civilizations. Ancient civilizations had to, to, to recognize the bounds and order of creation in order to perpetuate themselves. If you decide to plant your crops in late fall, you're not going to survive. If you are tradesmen and, and decide to sleep during the day and work at night, you're probably not going to be as productive uh, and effective as if you uh, rise early and, and work during the day and, 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 and go to rest in the evening. So it's obvious, but ancient civilizations had to recognize this ordered creation, and they had to seek to live within the bounds of this ordered creation. And we can think of this in a moral sense as well. God has created a moral order within this universe. He has created moral goalposts, and he says that we as image bearers will flourish if we live within the bounds of those goalposts, but if we seek to live outside those goalposts, life's going to be a bit more difficult. leads to misery. And so one way in which we seek to worship and praise God as creator is by utilizing wisdom to recognize and live within the bounds of this creation. And so when you see what, what's been going on, not only as of late, but within the last number of decades, the, the sexual revolution, um, proponents of such a movement are really seeking to do the very opposite of what's being called for here. Rather than seeking to live within the bounds of creation, they're seeking to defy this created order. That's the opposite of wisdom. That's the opposite of worshiping and praising God as our creator. Well, second, uh, God, again, as I said, utilized wisdom in the creation of all things. In wisdom, you created all things, the psalmist says. So God utilized wisdom to create all things. And so in Genesis 1, we see that God created the heavens and the earth. And then God looked upon that which was formless and void and created, created order out of this chaos. And so God utilized wisdom to create order out of chaos, and we are called to imitate that aspect of God in our common pursuits and vocations. We are called to bring order out of chaos in our responsibilities and vocations in this life. This provides a theological backbone to our work in this world, our common work in this world. As we seek to bring order and beauty and protection and benefit to our communities and societies, we are reflecting the wisdom of God and we are praising and worshiping God as our creator as we're seeking to, 
to uh, uh, imitate the wisdom that he utilized as he created order out of chaos back in Genesis chapter 1. And so as image bearers, we are to praise and worship God not only with our lips, but with our lives. And we do that as we recognize and live within the bounds of this creation and as we seek to pursue excellence within our common pursuits and vocations. Well, in this psalm, we not only hear about God as creator, but we, we, we see that God continues to provide, sustain, and uphold all that which he created. He didn't just create all things and let it go on its own. He continues to be very much involved in the sustenance of his creation. We see that he provides drink, food, shelter to many of the creatures of this world, even seemingly insignificant parts of his creation. God takes a special interest in. In fact, this is summarized nicely in verse 27 when the psalmist says these, all these creatures look to you, O God, to give them their food in due season. And then verses 28 through 29, the psalmist says that God himself holds the power over life and death. So God is very much involved in the sustenance and upholding of this created universe. And then as a consequence, as the psalmist says, both at the beginning and end of the psalm, we are to bless the Lord for his works of providence. We are to bless the Lord, praise the Lord as our sustainer. And as already mentioned, we do this not only with our lips, but we are to do this with our lives. And so how do we praise, worship our God as sustainer? With, with, with our lives? Well, one very practical way we do this is, is by trusting God with the cares and concerns of our life. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus does as he thinks about this same doctrine of providence that the psalmist here is speaking of. If you remember in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he calls upon them to consider the lilies of the, the field and the birds of the air. Some of the same aspects of, of creation the psalmist speaks about here in Psalm 104. And Jesus says, when you look at the birds, and, and when you look at how God provides for their needs, they have enough to eat, they have home in the branches of the trees, and they're not fretting each and every day about whether or not they'll have enough. And when you look upon the lilies of the field and how God beautifully clothes them, Jesus says to his disciples, are you, are you not of more value than they? Aren't you just a little bit more important than a sparrow or a blade of grass? And so if God richly provides and cares for things as seemingly insignificant as, bir as birds and grass, will he not provide for you? Is he not interested in your concerns, your burdens, your anxieties? And so as when we reflect upon the doctrine of God's providence, is meant to build up our trust in him. As the one who promises to care for us both body and soul, to give us all that we need as long as he ordains to give us breath in this life. And so as you go through your days and you witness many evidences of God's care for this creation, are you mindful of how those seemingly insignificant aspects of your day are reminders of God's fatherly care for you? That God takes an interest in your life, that God has your cares and concerns in mind? We are called to trust God, to trust God as our providential Heavenly Father. 
The second way in which we can praise and worship God as our sustainer is by enjoying his good gifts. One striking feature of this psalm is that this, this psalm does not present creation as merely utilitarian. Rather, as one author puts it, creation is presented as a source of joy for God's creatures. Creation is not here described as a, a, a world of scarcity, but of, of abundance. God does not merely provide for our bare essentials, but he overwhelms us with his abundance. You'll see here that uh, in verse 15, God provides wine to gladden the heart of man. God could just provide water. That would, you know, allow us to survive. But he provides wine for our enjoyment. We see in verse 26 that the beasts of the ocean play. They don't just merely survive, but they play. There's this element of enjoyment that God wishes his creatures to have as they live and operate within his creation. And so one way in which we, we, we praise and worship God as our sustainer is, is by enjoying God's good gifts. Now, as we seek to embrace and enjoy God's good gifts, there are, there are two ditches, two temptations that we fall into. The one temptation is a temptation of aestheticism, where we, we want to hold God's good gifts at arm's length. We don't want to embrace them too much or enjoy them too much, and we might keep them at arm's length because we, we, we don't want to fall into the trap of idolatry. But on the other end of the spectrum, we are also tempted to enjoy God's gifts supremely and forget about the giver, to become enslaved to these good things of this earth. And the Apostle Paul has some very wise words to those of us who struggle with both of these temptations. And so, to the aesthetic, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, For everything is created by God, or everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So notice what the Apostle Paul is saying there. He's saying everything is created, everything created by God is good. Meaning, we are to look upon God's gifts as good gifts. that are meant to be received and enjoyed by his creatures with a very important condition. If they're received with thanksgiving. Meaning, we are to enjoy these gifts as a means of enjoying, worshiping, and praising the giver of these good things. Our temptation is to forget about the giver and focus supremely upon the things of this earth. Well, to the idolater... The Apostle Paul says just two chapters later in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or set, them, set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So Paul is specifically talking to the rich, which according to world standards is all of us. We all have abundance. That's been given to us by God. And notice that Paul doesn't say, don't enjoy God's good gifts. Don't enjoy your wealth. No, he says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Rather, set your hope upon God, who is the one who richly provides you with everything to enjoy. 
Calvin has a, a John Calvin has a very helpful rule in how we should enjoy God's good gifts. He says that God's gifts uh, should be a means of uh, of uh, God's God's gifts should sustain but not oppress us. Meaning, whenever God's gifts become uh, uh, begin to have an enslaving grip upon us, that's evidence that we're beginning to set our hope upon those same gifts. So let me ask you, are you enjoying embracing God's good gifts? That's one way in which we praise and bless the Lord as our sustainer. And as you're embracing and enjoying God's good gifts, where's your hope? Is your hope in the gift or in the giver who richly provides you with everything to enjoy? Well, growing up on a farm uh, with my friends, my my, uh, siblings, we always would... uh, dare one another to touch the electric fence, the electric fence that would uh, you know, keep the cattle in and test to see how, how high that, that fence is turned up. And you, you touch that and you get quite the jolt. Well, as we come to the end of this psalm, this psalm ends in, in kind of a jolting manner, does it not? This beautiful, majestic psalm about, about God's creation and providence. And then we get to verse 35. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. And let the wicked be no more. We think, where did that come from? It's a wonderful, peaceful psalm. And then this this statement of God's judgment upon sinners. It's a very helpful reminder that the psalmist gives us here in verse 35. The psalmist is reminding us that even though this creation is beautiful, majestic, testifies to God's glory and greatness, it is a fallen creation. We can't forget about the concept of sin and the fall as we think about the beauty of God's creation. Romans 8 tells us that it's not just us, we who have bodies that are, that are longing for redemption, but creation itself is groaning for that day of redemption with the pains of childbirth. So creation itself participates and is affected by that original curse in Genesis chapter 3. And so our providential God is sustaining this fallen creation by his common grace. Now, we need to ask the question, why? Why why is God bothering to sustain and uphold this fallen creation? Why is he providing for all of these seemingly insignificant creatures? Why does he provide for, for, for the wicked? Why does he allow the sun to rise and the just and the unjust and send rains upon the righteous and the wicked? Why does God continue to sustain this present creation? Well, he continues to sustain creation so that his kingdom can be built, so that his gospel can be preached and so that his people can be saved. And as soon as the fullness of God's elect are brought in, Christ will descend from the clouds in judgment upon the sinners of the earth, those who are outside of him. So every day we awake to a new day, a new sunrise. That's not only evidence that God is continuing to sustain this creation, but it's also evidence that God still has kingdom work to do. Sinners still need to be saved through God's word and spirit. And so when you join your family at the breakfast table, 
you can be reminded of those two realities, that God is still in the business of sustaining this creation, but God still has kingdom work to do. Sinners will continue to be saved because there is another day. There are still members of the elect that need to be brought in through God's word and spirit, through the ministry of us, the people of God, and the church. And so you can see how common grace really serves the purposes of God's special grace. I mean, think about it. If God did not create an ordered universe in which language is possible, then how would the gospel be proclaimed and communicated and understood by human beings? And so you can see that Psalm 104 really does serve as the necessary foundation for what we read about in Psalm 103. Common grace serves special grace. And so the most important thing for us to take away as we conclude this psalm is that we are to find refuge in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the only means by which we will escape this present creation, which will be judged by fire and enter into the, the glories of the new creation. And so as we recite almost every Sunday in our catechism service, we are to, to praise and bless God, not only for our creation, preservation, um, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, for God's inestimable love, which is displayed in our Lord Jesus Christ as he redeemed this world. So let us pray.